Mumbrella's ComsCon Awards is returning on May 19, 2022, one of the most prestigious awards for the PR and communications industry in Australia and New Zealand. With categories ranging across business and consumer into content and strategy, government and pro bono work, and for both campaigns, agencies and individuals, the Mumbrella ComsCon Awards celebrate the full spectrum of the industry. Enter for your chance to celebrate your work and showcase what your business can do. Entries submitted before the first entry deadline on February 18 will save you $100. Head to mumbrella.com.au forward slash awards to enter now. Welcome to an early edition of the Mumbrella Cast, recorded on Wednesday afternoon, so we can enjoy the Mumbrella Christmas party on Thursday. Note to the industry, please don't send any breaking news on Thursday. I'm Damien Francis, and for the second last time in 2021, there's a great group of people joining me to break down the week in media and marketing. It's a bit of an international flavor for the Mumbrella Cast this time around. Proprietor of Unmade, Mumbrella Editor at Large, uh, based in the UK at the moment, Mr. Timothy Burrows. You think it's early for you, Damo? You should try being in the UK. It's five o'clock in the morning here. It's certainly not early for me. It's it, it's 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 PM for me. I'm very comfortable, but you look well for for so early in the morning. Thank you for joining us at this uh, horrendous time and in winter, no less for you. Also joining us on the Mumbrella Cast today is our reporter Anna McDonald. Hola. And Mumbrella Cast producer and Victorian editor-in-chief, Callum Justin AM. Hello, Damien. Later in the episode, Cal will quiz Mindshare CEO Katie Riggs-Smith on how healthy competition is driving Group M's agencies. We meet between each other, and so I just think there's um, a united front going into next year, which is wonderful. Um, and we're here to make sure that each other is as good as they possibly can be, because you don't want to be the weakest link. Her assessment of the agency she took over almost nine years ago. We are in the mindshare, if I look at us as a report card right now in Australia, we are healthier than we've ever been in our existence. And the ground she laid for female media agency CEOs after her. I have had a few of the, the female CEOs now say to me, you know, that made a big difference seeing you step in there, have babies and do those things. And there are so many wonderful CEO, female CEOs in this industry now. It's just mind-blowing to see. But before we get into that, the news for today, Callum. So first on off the bat, for a little Ashes cricket pun, um, we'll cover off a few things in this week's big media plays with Viacom CBS's streaming platform Pluto set to launch in Australia. SCA acquiring Kit's podcast company Kinderling and Racket Group this morning acquiring Junkie Media. Um, following that, we'll discuss the ad industry's ongoing issue with sexist behaviour and attitudes towards women, highlighted by this week's results from a survey conducted by Sheikwal. It's been a big week in media owner news. In a podcast interview on Unmade, 10 Viacom CBS Chief Sales Officer Rod Prosser revealed that Network 10's parent brand will be launching its Pluto streaming platform in Australia in 2022. While it's another streaming platform for what some call a saturated Australian streaming market, the difference here is that Pluto is AVOD, advertising-supported video on demand, as opposed to subscription-based SVOD or subscription video on demand, and there's complexities to that, which we will get into shortly. 
Meanwhile, Southern Cross Osterio's listener added to its podcast suite by acquiring Kindling, a popular Australian kids' radio and podcast company. Kindling's suite of audio content will join listeners' existing kids and family podcast series, including The Beanies, Zero Waste Baby, and Birth Baby and Beyond, among others. And finally, this morning, a surprise conclusion to O Media's sale of youth publication Junkie as Racket Group emerged as the buyer. Junkie will join Racket's portfolio of publishing, production, and digital assets, which include Australian Geographic, game developer and publisher Runaway Play, as well as production company Northern Pictures. It'll be headed up by Piers Grove, one of the founders and publisher of satirical news site The Batuta Advocate. The price of the acquisition is unknown at this stage after O Media originally bought 85% of Junkie back in 2016 for $11.05 million. Where do we start with that? I think Pluto is a good start. Tim, uh, I alluded to it before, AVOD, BVOD, SVOD, uh, particularly BVOD and AVOD, same thing, different thing. What are we talking about here? Look, they're all subsets of each other. So AVOD, which for a while has been the industry's preferred terminology, as you say, ad-supported video on demand, then the TV networks started deciding that maybe wasn't quite premium enough because that would also include things like user-generated content on YouTube. So they prefer BVOD, broadcast video on demand. And then out of the US at the moment, um, including from... Uh, from Viacom CBS, as it happens, they like fast, standing for free, ad-supported streaming television. So all basically the same thing, uh, being able to stream content and not having to pay for it because it has ads on it. You can't break up the VODs. That's just not going to work. But moving on very swiftly, uh, it sounds like it was a bit of an accidental uh, announcement, but an interesting nonetheless, an interesting one nonetheless, when you spoke to Rod Prosser on uh, the Unmade podcast. Uh, is there really space in the market at the moment for another streaming service, no matter what you call it? What do you think of, uh, about uh, Pluto? Yeah. Uh, and look, the very first point to make, and I think, um, Ten and Viacom CBS would probably thank me for making this point is this was not an announcement from them about the launch you know they wanted to be very clear they've not announced a timeline yet I think it's reasonable to deduce that it will happen next year uh, there was the comment from Rod Prosser that we were talking not years you've got the sort of added factor that that Pluto TV has rolled out very successfully in the US, large parts of Europe. There's a lot of momentum there. Um, this year, it wrote a billion dollars in advertising revenue, um, mainly out of the US. So there, there, there's a real appetite to go global with it. Um, since talking to Rod for that podcast, um, Bob Backish, who, who, who is the global CEO of Viacom CBS did an investor update um, just a few hours ago as we were recording it and said there'll be more announcements about the company's global streaming ambitions early next year. So so I, I would expect it to come quite soon, but it, it's, it's complicated because it, there's a lot of rights issues to deal with because it's 
where it's a point of difference from the existing um, streaming services is is channel based. So it's much more that lean back and you 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 you, you surf along and you see what's on rather than choosing your catch up viewing, choosing your show. So that um, that is a major point of difference, and I think that's the reason why there will be room for it. Um, in the end, it's going to be a huge marketing challenge because I suspect. If they can get people to try it, sample it, watch it, and the content is decent, and, you know, we're talking more than 200 channels in the US, more than 150 in in the UK, where I've had a chance to spend a bit of time with it this week, you could see people's habits sticking. So I think that when we see it sitting alongside template, um, and then up against obviously nine now and seven plus and um, SBS on demand. I wouldn't be surprised if um, a couple of years down the track we see um, Viacom CBS owning more than half of the B. Let's call it BVOD. More than half of the BVOD market. Um, I think it's got real potential if they get the launch right. So it's been mentioned that Pluto is looking for partnerships around the world, Viacom CBS looking to to create those partnerships. Tim, have you heard anything more about that? Well, one of the other things in the investor update from Bob Backish was making the point that as an organization, since he became CEO a couple of years back, he's been very interested in partnerships around the world, not just with, with, with Pluto, but with its other services as well. So uh, the company is, is 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 doing things with Sky Television across Europe, particularly in Eastern Europe. It's been doing things with the, the telco T-Mobile in the US. Uh, just uh, just 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 this week, it announced a tie-in with um, a major um, Korean media company. So I'd raise no more than a thought bubble that um, it'll be interesting whether Foxtel, which is so much in play at the moment. You know, everyone assumes an IPO and that still seems the most likely. Could there yet be some sort of partnership? Um, Certainly, it seems that philosophically, it's something Viacom CBS is open to. Now, moving along to the audio space, and we mentioned uh, listeners' acquisition of Kindling. Uh, This was a pretty interesting one and a big investment for listener as well, Tim. Your thoughts on uh, what this means for the business of podcasting, essentially. There's been a lot of talk about the uptake, but not necessarily strong business models behind it just yet. Does this uh, sort of suggest more uh, confidence in in the market at the moment? Look, it is really interesting. There seems like there's at least a big announcement a week on audio. Um, This one, you can see the attraction. It's content. It's content that comes both across DAB through the radio channels and also through the many podcasts they do for children as well. What interests me a bit is that there was no ASX announcement, which suggests that the price paid wasn't very high. Um, hey, look, we'll have to wait till the annual report comes out and we'll probably find out then. But um, but yeah, I, either it's a complicated deal or SCA have got a bargain. And uh, we've got to move quite quickly along. But speaking about figuring out prices and, and the ASX, uh, O uh, has sold Junkie, finally. A bit of a surprise. Uh, it wasn't some of the big names that we were talking about previously. We'd mentioned before uh, R Media, Bragg, HTE, so many different names of people that may have been interested. 
it's gone to racket. Tim, did you see that one coming at all? Not at all. Um, I must admit, I didn't really know very much about racket at all. If I'd thought about them at all, I'd have thought about them as mainly a TV making company, you know, through Northern Pictures, which is a part of their group, you know, makes Australian scripted children's factual TV, um, but also a uh, an investment in Australian Geographic as well, which I suppose is their, where their publishing chops come in. Um, the board is where it gets interesting, though, because amongst the people on the board is Joe Pollard, who back in the day ran 9MSN before being a marketer over at Telstra, and um, David Haslingdon, a former chair of uh, Nine Entertainment Co. So there, you know, there, there are some quite big players there. But, yeah, I suppose my first thought is culturally, um, gosh, it'll be very interesting to see how uh, how, how junkie media uh, folds into that. Yeah, absolutely. An interesting mix of uh, brands at Racket. And, of course, Neil Ackland will be remaining at O as well and not moving across uh, with the junkie acquisition. Time to move on because coming up next, we'll be talking about the Sequel report and how it's put the spotlight on the ad industry's poor behavior. Just before we get into this next topic, I should mention that we will be discussing sexual harassment and assault. So this discussion might not be for you today. I would suggest uh, you pause here if that's the case. If you or someone you know does need help, please call 1-800-RESPECT or 1-800-737-732. This week, the Australian ad industry was once again put on notice over its sexist attitudes and behaviour towards women. Sheequal, an initiative led by Women's Health Victoria, released a report on the culture of misogyny and sexual harassment within the advertising industry following an online survey in October of 2021, which resulted in 598 responses. Most respondents in the survey were currently working within advertising and in agencies. Respondents were more likely to identify female over male, with most aged 30 to 49 years, and women aged 25 to 39 making up a third of the respondents. While this is obviously an area that has plagued the industry for some time, it's presented some pretty sobering findings. Uh, There's been a fair bit of detail in this report, but maybe let's start with some of the base stats. Anna, you covered this for us. Can you share a bit more uh, about that? Sure. So I think one of the main things that came out of the report is a big disparity between male and female respondents in uh, perceptions around gender equality issues. So in in terms of the statistics, um, 46% of female respondents cited a fear of negative consequences as a reason for not speaking up about gender equality issues versus 17% of male respondents. Nearly one in three female respondents had experienced negative consequences because of speaking up as well about a gender equality issue in advertising content, 29%, or the workplace or the workplace, 30%, compared with 14% and 12% of males, respectively. Um, There was also some findings with the effectiveness of workplace discussions about equality. 35% of female respondents said um, they were very or extremely effective versus 56% of male respondents. And I think quite tellingly, in general, I think men are paid more than women in similar roles in my industry. 59% of females strongly agreed 
27% of females somewhat agreed, contrasted to 16% of males strongly agreed, and 39% of males somewhat agreed. But I think the most powerful findings from that report actually came from the freehand responses. So there were a lot of stories of grooming, dismissal, sexual assault was unfortunately in there as well, gaslighting, pay disparity, parental leave was a big issue, you know, women coming back from parental leave and finding that they'd been demoted, um, hiding pregnancies as well to avoid discrimination, hiring based on looks, tokenism, and just a lot of microaggressions as well. I think context is also really important here in terms of what I mentioned before in the intro that it's something we've been dealing with or not necessarily dealing with but talking about for quite some time in the industry. Tim, I want to go to you uh, in terms of, uh, unfortunately, some of these results surprise no one really and you've been covering the industry for for longer than, than any of us here uh, what did you think about the, the findings and, and why is it that we just can't seem to even start to fix this problem? Yeah, there's so much to unpack there. Um, firstly, I think the industry has moved a bit, but much more slowly than society as a whole. Um, you know, bizarrely for something which thinks of itself on the, the cutting edge of culture Adland has been one of the slow places um, to change. And in large part, it's because the long established bosses kind of like it the way it is. You can't, you, you can't believe it's any other reason other than that. Not all of them, of course, in fact, not even the vast majority, but enough that everybody knows who's being talked about when these things go on. And this is the single biggest problem is defamation. Um, it's really hard to make these claims stand up when if you made a claim publicly and you named names, if you couldn't prove it beyond reasonable doubt in court, it could be a very expensive defamation action. So that's that that's been one of the reasons why Australia has been so slow on the whole Me Too movement anyway. Um I think in the end the only way it will change is when there's some sort of hearing where there's whether it's parliamentary privilege or some other form of privilege where people without fear can tell their stories and name the names um and that could happen you know the mechanisms are there but that to me feels like the only route where these stories will get told it almost sounds like we need a royal commission into this unfortunately something like that because it has been going on for quite some time uh, Anna and Kala, I want to ask you, because I know you've spoken to a few people uh, about this within the industry and at various levels, because of course, this isn't just something that affects CEOs or the C-suite. This is something that affects everyone in the industry. Uh, but Kala, I might start with, with you. What sort of feedback have you had about the, the, the findings? Yeah, so... I mean, this is this is something I've actually been speaking to a few people about uh, a few industry executives for a couple of weeks because you know it is it is getting to that point where there are, as Tim mentioned, there there's stories everyone everyone's across, everyone's talking about it, and unfortunately, the answer keeps coming back that a lot of these things aren't going to stick until the stories that everyone is you know not talking about are able to be spoken about. And it, it, 
it's it's interesting because we are seeing, um, and this is something that in the the interview I did with Katie, which will be coming up right after this, we spoke about, and you know, especially in the media agency industry, there are a pretty high clip of CEOs in particular and uh, people in C-suite roles who are females, and you'd hope that you know, with that kind of becoming more of a a common thread, that with kind of strong leadership on that front there will be change. And a few of the executives I've spoken about are saying, you know, it's a tricky, it's a tricky thing to kind of drive from the front when you're in this position of power. But then when you're going into these sort of industry body meetings and you're in the position to finally be the one who can make change, then you're in this room of, you know, seven or eight other middle-aged white guys. And again, you're then put in a situation where you are the minority and you kind of feel isolated as a, as a leader. So I think a lot of it is still education day to day, and this is what this is what I've been hearing. And what it takes is people actually calling it out and really making an example of it when it does come up. Because you know there are yes differences between harassment and sexism. Sexism being something that a lot of people are saying is still just you know it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. So I guess, you know, until, as Tim mentioned there, as you mentioned, Damo, until we kind of have some, uh, a forum where this can be spoken about, it's, it, it's really hard to see uh, or it's hard to put the responsibility on those who have experienced it themselves to be the ones driving this change. I think importantly, like you just said, Cal, we're at a stage now where there are a number of female CEOs. And as Tim also mentioned, uh, it's a minority uh, who are creating some fairly serious challenges here, it would be great to see those people actually start to make a sway. I mean, those people in terms of the majority who are doing good things to start to make uh, the change here. Uh, Anna, you also did speak to a few people as well. Just to piggyback off what was uh, what Cal was saying, that also male allyship in particular was stressed in the report and also the, the discussions uh, I've been hearing about the report is so important. It's not just about, it's not the onus isn't just on females who have experienced these things to speak up. It's also on males who are in the room to call out sexist behavior and call out things that aren't right. Um, I spoke to Hannah Sturrock, who is the national head of engagement at the Advertising Council of Australia. They actually have their own diversity and inclusion survey, Create Space, um, Submissions are still open for that, by the way, for anyone that's interested. Um, and I think discussing with her, one of the hardest things she was saying about these kind of surveys is, first of all, it is really important. You don't know what you don't know. It is really important to actually have these surveys and have this data. But in order to enact the change required to prevent these, these harms occurring, it's a systemic issue. So it needs systemic change and changing the system takes years it's a she gave me the time frame of three to five years for the implementation of things that will actually change things and also be measurable you know and, and the report itself did also have some concrete suggestions to improve things I'm not saying they're going to solve everything but you know it's things like greater pay transparency a more open dialogue improved parental leave um, and also yeah naming and shaming companies with Poor records. 
Yeah, and another thing as well to point out is none of these issues are unique to the advertising industry. Only, I think it was last week, I believe, the Jenkins report on um, uh, sexual harassment in the Australian Parliament that went live, and it's a very similar culture, unfortunately, there as well of sexual harassment, alcohol, bullying, misogyny. It's it's societal. It's not just unique to the industry. And just to jump on Anna's point there about alcohol, one of the executives I, I did speak to before was mentioning that, you know, at this time of year, everyone's wrapping up, everyone's got their Christmas parties like we do tomorrow. Um, and, and they mentioned that for the Christmas party this year, because, you know, a lot of these incidents do happen in those kind of situations where alcohol is involved. They had an open floor discussion uh, on the kind of rules and behaviours that will and won't be tolerated at the party um, this year. So I think when when you start having those kind of open discussions, people feel more confident and comfortable within, you know, what is right and what is wrong. So I think steps like that to add on to the suggestions that Anna mentioned were, are going to be really important moving forward. We need to move on. Coming up next, Callum will chat with Mindshare CEO Katie Rigg-Smith. Katie Rigg-Smith, CEO of Mindshare Australia. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, absolute pleasure. So I, I guess a good way to a good point to start would be to sum up the year. It's the end of the year, second to last podcast of 2021. If you could take us through, I guess, your thoughts, maybe some highlights, some lowlights, or you can even extend it to the whole of the, the weird 18-month COVID period, if you like. <laughs> oh, there are a lot of topics in that one, aren't there? Um, in terms of the highlights, I would say for Mindshare, we've had some really good strengthening of existing relationships and re- retention. So that's always a highlight because you want to maintain the clients that you have. We've won some really cool clients. So that's been wonderful to bring that momentum into the agency. Um, we've cracked our global positioning around good growth. And that's been a really big rally cry for the agency and what we're doing in the future. And I think it was a really nice thing to see work um, on a Mindshare as the network of the year um, globally for the second consecutive year just last week. So we've had some big highlights in that respect. And, um, you know, also just watching my team adapt and continue to learn how to navigate the crazy world that we currently live in. I mean, I'm so proud of them. It it is really a a huge testament to what they can achieve. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll get into the kind of um, the good growth positioning a bit bit deeper later. But, you know, you spoke about their retaining, you you retained NAB after you strengthened that relationship a couple of years ago. Um, especially with uh, Clemenger on the creative side losing that business. So, you know, um, you also picked up University of Melbourne, Jenny Craig, uh, uh, Click Frenzy. Am yep. I missing any there? Campari. Yeah. Campari, and that was Vodka. another one. Yeah, so there's, there's been some good good wins. But uh, on the other side, there was the IAG loss, um, which obviously went uh, to initiative. I'd be interested to to get your thoughts on kind of the what comes after something like that, and what did that mean for the business, and have you how have you been bouncing back of sorts since? Oh yeah, great question. Look, I think. Um credit to the business that we were able to immediately bounce back. I mean, IAG is a great client and it's a big client and the loss of it, it hurts as it always does, but we wish them nothing but the best 
um, going forward and we were able to rebound. We had enough momentum in the business and enough else going on that that actually, it was one of those things you learn from and you move on from. Yeah, and the, and those wins that you've got, they're quite a heavy focus on kind of um, local clients and local business as opposed to those kind of global wins filtering down. Is that is that a focus for uh, Mindshare and is that something that you'll be looking at more into 2022? Yeah, absolutely. I really do believe you need to run a two-speed economy agency-wise in that respect in that you do really want some great local clients because that's where you can test and learn different things. You can really push the the envelope with your creativity. You can have very clear one-on-one conversations. Equally, you want some really amazing global clients because the ability, and again, being network of the year, we get to work with some amazing countries. And so the ability to push our thinking, learn from what other countries are doing, advancements that they may have made in technology, et cetera, you kind of have the best of both worlds because you can also take that back to your local clients and vice versa. So I'm very passionate that we maintain both a local and a global footprint within the agency. Yeah, for sure. And is there any other kind of ways that, you know, going forward as we are at the end of the year that you'll be looking to kind of grow into 2022? Yeah, definitely in the technology and transformation space. You know, the end-to-end customer experience is so important for our clients and being able to knit that whole media ecosystem together is really important. So we're definitely ramping up in that space, uh, you know, particularly in ad tech and commerce. And then the the yin to that yang and something I'm very passionate about is just consumer. And really it's, yeah. it's making sure we maintain the magic in what we do and that we continually have the right insight and all the data in the world gets turned into something that you can do something with in a really magical way. So for me, it's it's those two things that we'll continue running at next year. Perfect. And um, I guess on a kind of uh, year and review, it's been a very, very busy year for Group M more generally. I'm keen to get your thoughts now that you've with, they've had all these changes and things kind of seem to to be settling of sorts. Um, keen to get your thoughts on the kind of feeling at Group M now. Things have changed since when you when you came in, the days of the big four, when it was MEC, Maxis, Mindshare and Mediacom. Now oh, yeah. we have a potential return to a, a big four with, um, you know, the two former agencies now, Wavemaker and Essence's merger and expansion into 2022. Yep. I am truly so excited. We had a big um, group in launch the other week, Amy launched a platform called Strive, which is about flexible working and and how Group M are going to approach it. But the thing that made me really excited was the four CEOs and Amy were all there together launching this. It was to all of our staff together. And we've always had such great rapport within between each other and so I just think there's um, a united front going into next year which is wonderful Um, and we're here to make sure that each other is as good as they possibly can be because you don't want to be the weakest link. No for sure I mean it's good to have (laughs) a bit of healthy competition. Exactly. And how how do you see I guess in that sense the the agencies is really differentiating themselves is it is it a kind of united front or are you have you got a bit of that kind of friendly competitiveness? I think it's united in everything that we need to do. We need to be united against all the rest of the competition. But absolutely, we need to make sure that we're trying to differentiate in our own agencies. And we're very clear on that differentiation and the values that exist in each agency and how they're different. So that we need to, we also have competitive clients. So we need to make sure that we are unique agencies, but where we can, the power of all of us together is going to be more 
um, enticing for people coming into the agency group to know that there is four big agencies that if they want a career path eventually they can. So it's more of those things that we need to be united and then we need to be making sure that when it comes to a client-by-client basis, they're brought into Mindshare, they're brought into Wavemaker, et cetera, et cetera, and we need to be servicing them that way. And is there... Is there any kind of strategy in terms of the the focus of the client list between the four agencies that you could kind of see developing? I mean, I know in the past there have been shifts from clients moving within the group. Is there? I know Essence is kind of more traditionally being digitally focused. Does that does that does that play into you know when, when there's an approach for a pitch or anything like that? No, I think you get um, driven by what the clients and the pitch consultants have decided in terms of who they see um, position themselves as in a way that's relevant to that client that's pitching. So it's really, I think, determined more by the, the market and what a client wants and what they've seen and heard from you, which again is why we as agencies need to differentiate ourselves so that we're the ones that are top of mind as being right for them. Yeah. And then um, in terms of uh, dig- digressing a bit there with being yeah. right for, you know, you've, you, you want, the one thing you launched this year was the Good Growth platform, as we yeah. mentioned earlier, uh, and that is kind of underpinned by the Responsible Investment Framework, which focuses on brand safety, data ethics, diversity, equity and inclusion and sustainability. Um, how, how is the agency, I mean, first of all, how is that going since the launch of that and then on a second part there how's the agency kind of actioning these frameworks and really making sure that it does follow through on exact for example on the the diversity and inclusion framework oh, i love it i love this question and i will try not to talk for too long on it but um <laughs> it goes as long as you like <laughs> basically i think for mindshare australia we have been very long for the last year been working to the mission that we're here to help our clients achieve their wildest ambitions and there's something really emotive and rich in that and the discussions it unlocks with our clients is amazing it takes us to a more future and thought leadership position the global positioning coming in as unlocking good growth worked perfectly at anchoring our wild ambitions get anchored by good growth and what's been really good about that is that we've seen the research that clients who have a strong um, ESG and are following that that ESG deliver beyond their competitors so for us it's been about understanding each client we're not here to judge them we're not that's that's not our role we're here to understand where they're trying to go with their growth we're here to help them understand what long-term sustainable growth looks like and then what can we do to help facilitate that and so every single client it has been a nuanced conversation then it's about going okay so within that here's a repertoire of products that might help beyond the normal day-to-day planning or day-to-day strategy or implementation that will help you client x achieve what you need to achieve and so it depends where they're at whether it's sustainability de and i um it could just be good growth in terms of not being a clickbait client and actually developing a loyalty relationship so it has a spectrum but it's going really well And the other part about it is it's a rally cry for our staff. You know, our teams want to believe that they're doing something worthwhile and good. And when they know that they can come up with initiatives um, for it, we we actually had a Mindshare Day, our birthday on the 1st of November. The entire Mindshare world answers the same brief on that day. And the brief was actually for your client. What does good growth look like and what could you do that would really help? And the ideas that came out were phenomenal. And so it's a rally cry for them as well. 
It's it's interesting. This week um, we had an interview on Mumbrella uh, with Amy, with um, our managing editor, Olivia Crummel. And there was a kind of focus on these initiatives coming through and it's very much recently been, you know, focused on outward attracting people into your business. But Amy spoke a little bit about actually retaining your own Mm. staff and keeping Mm. them happy. Is that something that's played into the kind of um, into that framework this year? Because obviously, you know, there has been such a big focus on attracting uh, talent. But when you've got that talent, you do really need to keep it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think your talent want to know that they're working for a business with a point of view and that they're working with a business that has a vision and a mission that they buy into. So whatever that is, as long as they buy into it, they see it and they can see how their role has a part in delivering that bigger picture. And so for us, having that wild ambitions underpinned by good growth, having Group M talking about building better advertising for people, that has really been something that our teams are buying into and it has become a retention tool. Yeah. Um, and then moving on a little bit, you are, um, a, a, as far as I understand, a mindshare lifer. Is that is that correct? You've been... <laughs> yeah. yeah, nearly two, so, 22 and a half years, yes. 22 and a half years, a, a very impressive innings. Um, you came <laughs> into your current role in 2013, now being right. one of the longest serving current CEOs in Australia. After eight years in the, in the role, how, how do you think you, the tenure has been so far? Do you think you've overperformed, underperformed, I would be keen to get your thoughts on it. Well, it depends who's listening. If Amy and Ashutosh are listening and my, my, then I've, and Adam Gerhardt, then I've totally overperformed and I'm just like, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, look, I think we are in the mindshare, if I look at us as a report card right now in Australia, we are healthier than we've ever been in our existence. So that that isn't just me by any stretch of the imagination, but the agency is doing well. We've got a broad range of clients. We have amazing staff. We're winning awards. Um, we're delivering for our clients and our people are happy. So, you know, I, I feel like in that respect, um, I've been performing. I have been performing. I'm so bashful. I hate talking about myself like this. Um, <laughs> but, I, yeah, so, yes, I have performed. I, I think that... Um, one of the things I'm proud about are really in terms of when you mentioned being the longest serving uh, or one of the longest serving CEOs and and being a female CEO at the time when I became CEO, there were no other female CEOs at that moment in time. There had been previously. And I remember I very publicly have said I turned the role down initially to Steady, who wouldn't let me, he wouldn't accept that. But a large part of why I turned that down was I was 34, I was engaged and I wanted to have children and I had I couldn't see anyone else as a CEO that was female doing that and I just thought I, I don't think this is achievable and so I have had a few of the, the female CEOs now say to me, you know, that made a big difference seeing you step in there, have babies and do those things and there are so many wonderful CEO, female CEOs in this industry now. It's just mind-blowing to see. And so to think I had any role in doing that, you know, leading the agency, having three babies throughout that time, not just for the other female CEOs but for my own staff showing you how to integrate life and how to potentially have a balance. So any of those things, if it, you know, the performance metrics around delivering client growth and delivering our own growth and all of those things are one thing but to do it in a way where you hopefully can help other people see their own path. If, if I've achieved that, then I feel like I have achieved. 
Awesome. And I do want to actually focus on your role as a female CEO in Australia just in a little bit. But just before we get on to that, be keen to just staying on your, your actual role so far. Compared to when you came into the role, you know, in 2013, when you were, as you say, the, the only female CEO in Australia, how do you kind of see the agency compared to then? Oh, it's completely different and in the best possible way. And that's not to take away from where it was before or anything like that, but the market moves so quickly, you have to be able to move with it. You have to be able to adapt and mould the agency. And and so the thing that I um, have always been comfortable with is having a point of view. I have a very strong point of view of where I think the future of the agency needs to be, the industry, how people are behaving. And so having the kind of keys to the agency to make those changes and to consistently adapt. We don't do big restructures. We had one big restructure in my tenure, which was reprofiling 70% of the job roles. But after that, I was like, never again will we get to a place where we need to do this. We will continually evolve the agency. And so when you asked me earlier, what are our big bets for next year? We've already started to evolve the agency to meet those needs. And and so, yeah, so for me, the, the look and feel of the agency right now is completely different to what the agency looked like um, eight years ago. But at the heart of what we do, that hasn't changed. Understanding how people behave, understanding how they behave with media and how best to use media as a conduit to get to brands and vice versa. Amazing. That's what we do. And then um, I mentioned just, well, we, we spoke just before about, you know, 22 years at the at the agency. I, I don't believe, well, off the top of my head, there's only one that I can really think about uh, that matches you in that department that was the recently departed CEO of Leo Burnett, Melinda Gertz. Um, looking forward, uh, I, I mean, I, there was kind of industry rumours that yourself and Group M stalwart Peter Vogel were up for that Group M CEO role. Now with Amy in that role, do, do you think that affects your plans for the future or do you have plans for the future looking forward or are you right now you want to do the whole one one uh, one job career? I, I, right now I just want to get through the next two weeks in the, <laughs> um, for Christmas. No, look, it's a really good question. And um, I, for one, was so thrilled when Amy came into the role because I think she is exactly what the group needs as a group CEO. So I was personally thrilled. Yeah. For me, and it is a really good question, I do get asked it a lot, is what's next? Because, you know, I guess at the time when I was made CEO, I didn't feel young. You never do at the time. But in hindsight now, I'm like, oh, God, I was a baby. So to have been doing it now for nearly nine years um, and and stuff, you realise that I was quite young back then and, and obviously I still hopefully have a long career ahead of me. The answer to it would be, because I do get asked it a lot, is I'm just driven by what I get to do as opposed to what the title is and so if I can continue to mold the CEO role in a way that speaks to my more strategic side of things um, you know in the last year I've had the pleasure of doing some projects with WPP the fabulous Rose Herzeg had me involved in secrets and lies and the secrets of language and I got to uh, you know write a piece about voice and so that was a great learning curve for me and, and, and owning that piece and then um, WPP did the double 11 recently on the impact of um, of double 11 on it and so I got to be part of that I've signed up to university to do short courses and I've started one oh, in really? anthropology yeah I've started one <laughs> in anthropology and I really want to do one in linguistics so there's a whole lot of stuff that I feel like when you get to a certain level your career is yours to own And there's the day job, which you have to do brilliantly. But beyond that, how do you challenge yourself and never grow complacent? So my thing is really 
my own learning agenda. And some clients will laugh if they're listening to this because I always come to them in my top to top. So I'm like, so my last week's learning agenda, this is what I learned. And I know it's a really random fact, but I think it could be really interesting for you. And so um, I, I geek out on that stuff. So we'll be seeing anthropology added to Mindshare's suite of uh, capabilities <laughs> in 2022. Yeah, that, that, yeah that's <laughs> actually secretly going to be my mission. It's one of the big bets. <laughs> so back, back to what we were speaking about just before. And, you know, now eight, eight or, not, or almost nine years, as you mentioned, on from when you were appointed, there's some pretty serious representation of female CEOs specifically yeah. in Australia, just na- to name a few. We've got, you know, the uh, mentioned Amy Buchanan, Anna Thea Royce, yes. Melissa Fine, v- Virginia Highland, Nikki Scraven, Sue Squilacci, and then the recently appointed OMD duo, um, Laura Nice and Sean Whitnell, to name a few. Um, you know, that covers off quite a significant portion of even just the, the holding groups in Australia in the, the media sector. This week, the MFA released a diversity, uh, equity and inclusion survey, which found that women in C-suite roles uh, in the media industry are taking up 45%, which is about 12.5%, I think, higher than the the rest of the Australian um, workforce. Is there something that you feel is particular about the media industry now that it kind of has seen that really strong progression that we aren't kind of seeing reflected in the rest of Australian society? I think um, it comes down to having the ability to drive flexibility and that for me has always been something when you talk about having females in leadership roles we have to be able to craft a flexibility now everyone male or female or whichever gender you identify has to be able to have their flexibility and your flexibility the way you want. But I think until we actually started to tackle that as an industry, there was no way you were going to bring females back. I mean, like I said, I've got three children that are six years and under, and and it's incredibly hard if I was made to do the hours of nine to five in an office every day, et cetera, and I couldn't tailor things the way I needed to. And so I think that um, all agencies and the, the, the holding groups and the independents, et cetera, have realised the value of bringing women back in and letting them create and craft a flexible working way that is going to help them succeed. And so, yeah, I think it's also about people seeing it play out, you know, seeing other women and, and chatting to them. And, and the women that you just mentioned, oh, my God, what an amazing group of people. And I adore them. And, yes, we have to compete against each other, but they are bright and they are accomplished and a lot of them I call really good friends that we, you know, instant message each other and, and we'll check in on each other um, as we're going through things. So I think it's also about creating that that network of women that are going to succeed and also engaging men. I think maybe what we our industry has done well is bring the men on the journey with us and and help get them to be a voice for us too. You know, back to the point that I said, I turned down the job for CEO to steady because I didn't feel confident that I could do everything. And in that moment, he had a choice. He could have said, you know what, no one knows I've offered it to you. You're right, Katie. Have your kids. Come back when you're ready. I've got some men that I can put other people in. And he didn't. He said, no, Katie, I don't care. Have babies when you have babies. I'll support you through it. You're going to do this job. And I needed that. And and I needed to see it was possible and have the support. And I feel like when all of us women have seen each other doing it, it just makes it more viable. And the men around us see it happening and go, yeah, cool, we can help that be we can help facilitate that. Yeah, I definitely think there's no no better way to do it than by having someone in that role that can really kind of show others that, you know, 
not only is that a, a, a possible timeline for your career progression, but then you can do it and encourage others. And it, the, the effect it's obviously had has been um, great to see. And then on the, the MFA there, you, you it was yeah. announced um, this week. We are recording this on uh, Friday the 3rd of December. We'll be going out next week. Um, you, you stood down from the MFA this week um, with, I, I believe, Amy rejoining um, yes. on the board um be interested to get some of your reflections on your time um while you were on the board there the the media federation do you think much has changed uh, is there anything you're particularly proud of that you had your your um your hand in yeah I look again and I hate to I, don't, I hate to harp on about the gender thing but we joked that before um so Sophie obviously as the CEO Sophie Madden she's doing such a wonderful job Megan Brownlow it was Sophie Megan and myself there were there were more Johns on the board than there were females at one point in time at the beginning and I think that has definitely been that diversity has been addressed um and that's something I'm proud to see is that diversity at the table um I you know I was a bit of a sook I I hate it I hate saying goodbye to people I'm terrible and so you know at the last board meeting I'm like oh my gosh I'm gonna miss you all and they're all in semester me going you are such a softy um what I loved about it is we do have to fight hard like we do have to it's such a competitive industry but at that table that group of people genuinely care about the growth of our industry they genuinely care about the talent coming through and that's what I loved being part of I loved being part of that group of people and so um when I reflect, I think things like NGen and MFA 5 Plus and the awards, the focus we put on effectiveness in awards and all of the initiatives that have happened with technology and buying systems, all of those things and, and diversity projects, I'm hugely proud of being part of that group of people. Well, Katie, it's been really great having you on the podcast and uh, thanks so much for coming on and joining us. No problem. Thank you for having me. And that's a wrap for this week. Please make sure you subscribe to the Mumbrella Cast on whatever your favorite podcast platform happens to be. Tim, Anna, Cal, thank you so much for joining me. We will see you next week. Thank you, Damo. Thanks, Damo.